Ecclesiastes 4, 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after a wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of all pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, worship team. And thank you, congregation, for singing. I, uh, I started the service in the back of the auditorium and finished it up here. And just from those two perspectives, this is the better seat up here, y'all. Uh, just hearing your voices uh, singing, Awake my soul and sing of him who died for me. Oh, that, that met me this morning. So good. Uh, let's bow and let's pray together. Ask God to open our eyes to his truth this morning. Give us grace to obey. Lord, we thank you for the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who meets us in our need, dies in our place, rises again, and offers us life, life with you and life restored with other people. Lord, show us your good plan for that life today through your word. Help us, we pray, Lord. Just listening to drips that are all around us and uh, it's just a reminder to us of how feeble and weak we are. We're distracted. So we ask that you would help us today to have our attention on Christ and his word. Meet us there. Change us and grow us. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're back in our series called Rhythms this morning, and as Jotham said at the beginning of the service, our rhythms at Gospel Grace are the ordinary but essential practices that we as a church devote ourselves to on the path of following Jesus. And this morning, we're talking about our next rhythm, that rhythm grow in community, community can't think of a better day to talk about community than one where it feels like we're all in this together. Am I right? Okay. Uh, thankful for our, uh, our tech team and deacons and musicians this morning. They came in and this whole stage was covered with tarps at 7 a.m. And now it looks like this. Um, there were deacons on the roof shoveling off snow yesterday and laying down tarps. And you are here and maybe for the first time when Jotham started his communion explanation, you heard 
the drips. Did anybody for the first time go like, what is that? Somebody playing the drums in here? We're all in this together, y'all. And, um, and God's word is going to help us know what that means and how to live together. Well, as I was thinking about this topic of community this weekend, relationships and connections, I got to thinking about one of the major technology advancements that has happened recently. Uh, You may have seen this, you might even have an opinion about it, but Apple computers recently released the Vision Pro. How many of you have seen something about this? Yeah. Now, there are a lot of things we could talk about with this, and if you know me, you know that I would love to talk to you about that. So um, if you want to, we can chat and geek out all day long about the tech that's in it. But one thing that I noticed as it relates to community is what Apple is saying are the features of this product right here. One of those is how your eyes can be covered by a screen and you can stay connected to the outside world. There's even like an ad where it shows a dad playing soccer with his child with the Vision Pro on, okay? Another feature they're saying is how other people can stay connected to you by seeing a video of your eyes on a screen. So that's not like looking through that woman's face right there. That's actually a video of her eyes from the inside. Okay, so catch this. On on one side, you are looking through a screen to view people. On the other side, people are looking at a screen to view your eyes. In fact, the commercial that's right here, uh, it finishes with the daughter running up to the dad and sticking her tongue out at him, and then the dad sticks his tongue back out at her with the goggles on, okay? The future, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) the future. This this is what we have right here. Show me that. Yeah, there it is right there. This is like a whole collection of people that think that that's not a cartoon, it's a documentary. <laughs> and um, I don't know. Okay, I do not know. But um, seriously, though, it, uh, it brings to mind uh, something I read from an MIT professor. Her name is Sherry Turkle. She wrote a book called Alone Together. She's not a Christian, but she does make a profound assessment about how we relate to one another in our digital age. Technology is seductive when it offers to meet our human vulnerabilities. And as it turns out, we are very vulnerable indeed. We're lonely, but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. Ouch, right? But before we all uh, rush to pointing fingers or nudging a spouse, um, I wonder wonder if you've ever heard someone uh, say to you what I've heard in my home, what what I'm thinking uh, when I'm trying to catch up on work on my phone and also sit at the kitchen table when family life is happening all around me. And my wife just gently, kindly says, John, you're here, but you're not here. God's word is going to meet us right there this morning. 
in the words of a very wise man written hundreds of years ago, we find what the Bible teaches about community and relationships. And in our text today, we find a very clear and concise statement about that community, and that is this. God made us for that community, but we push it away. God designed us to live in relationships, but far too often we push God's design away, which I know is super encouraging, isn't it? Like, be encouraged, friends. God made you for community, but you push it away. Selah. <laughs> Seriously, though, I, I actually think that happens a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Hey. This book is very clear at pointing out problems that only Jesus can solve. So as we work through our text today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to see three things. We're going to see, first of all, God's design for community. Then secondly, how that design has been broken by sin. And then finally, the hope that is only found in Jesus. So let's start by looking, first of all, at this truth about community. God designed us for it. God designed us for community. Verse 9 tells us this, two are better than one. Two are better than one. Now, why is that? Why are two better than one? Because, because from a theological perspective, that's how God designed the world to function. That's how he made humans. Two are better than one. We're made for community. And that concept actually shows up in some of the earliest moments of human history. So all the way back in the story of creation in Genesis 1, day after day, God creates and then he examines his work. And then boys and girls, I need your help. What does he say at the end of each day? He says, good. That sounded like some adult changed voices there. Okay, that's good too though. Yeah, good at the end of each day until the sixth day, right? You know what he says on that day? He says, it's not good. Now, why is it that something was not good? The text says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, don't miss this, okay? This is, this is before the world had been broken by sin. The world is perfect, and yet there's something that is not good. Like, what's going on there? Well, it, it wasn't just that Adam didn't have a wife, okay? And after uh, the last few days where my wife's been out of town and uh, I've had the kids and kind of dealing with stuff and getting ready for this, and she actually just flew in about 40 minutes ago, okay? Um, that might be on my mind, okay? Like, not good for me to be alone. My, my wife would be good, but that's not what I was talking about at all, okay? Um, this isn't primarily talking about loneliness in Adam's life. It's actually primarily about something deep and profound about what it means to be human. And what is that? Genesis 1.26 tells us, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. At our most fundamental level, we are created as humans to reflect God. That's what we're made for. That's what it means to be made in God's image. Humans are made to reflect him. But did you catch how God revealed himself as the one who wants to be reflected in humans? 
Let us make man in our image. As God speaks, there's a conversational element to it, isn't there? Who's this conversation with? Is God like gathering the animal kingdom and sitting the animals down and being like, all right, guys, let us make man in our image. Think that's what's going on? How many of you think it is? You shouldn't. Okay, it should be this. All right? That's not what's going on. This is actually a conversation that occurs within the Godhead. And in that, God is revealing something very important about his nature. And that is that his nature is relational, y'all. God is a relational God who has eternally existed, always been this way, in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, even as we begin talking about God's design for community, I don't want you to miss this. It's the fact that as image bearers, we are bearing the image of a God who is in community in himself. And the climax of the whole creation story centers around the eternally relational God creating not just one human, right? But two, to reflect him in loving community, both with him and each other. And when he finished, he said, very good. That's God's design. So with that, here's something we have to understand. When we talk about community, we're not just talking about being around people who are like us or who like us. Okay, this isn't just about sharing interests. It's not just being in the same location as a group of people. Community is a unity with God and others that we were made for as a result of bearing his image. I love how Richard Plass puts this in his book, The Relational Soul. He says this. He says, at the core of our being is this truth. We were designed for and defined by our relationships. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. And look at this. We cannot not be relational. A few years ago, I was listening to a pastor, and he made a point about this that has stuck with me ever since. He says, it doesn't matter how extroverted or introverted you are. It doesn't matter how much education you have, how much money you have, how successful you are. You could be living in your dream house, working your dream job, driving your dream car. But if one relationship close to you is out of whack, you're an emotional wreck. You ever felt that before? It's because we cannot not be relational. In other words, two are better than one. Look down at your text. Why? Because they have a good reward for their toil, verse 9. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, this is talking about a cold night in the desert, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Do you catch what Solomon is doing in this text? He's saying that we will most certainly face difficulty in this life. And if we go through that difficulty alone, the results can be devastating. But in God's design for community, there can actually be great good even in the face of great difficulty because we're made for relationships. 
I was actually thinking about how to illustrate this. And um, I remembered something that happened at our last pastor's retreat where we go to plan and pray and think about what God has next for us. So we got a condo up in Park City. It was gorgeous, great spot to get away and breathe and think. And as has been the tradition, uh, we got a hot tub. Because like we work, we think, we pray, we go pretty hard all day and then we finish the day by just talking about what's on our hearts and what God's doing in our lives. This is what it looks like in those moments, okay? It's a little look of like <laughs> business mode. And I uh, just want to apologize to Will right away. Um, it's been a busy weekend. Didn't actually run that picture by him, but it was on my phone, so I decided to put it up there. Um, so anyway, everything's going great. We got, we got in the hot tub. We just had a great conversation about what God was doing in our lives. Quiet night, cool air, a great spot, great friends, and everything was going really well until it was time to head inside. And uh, we noticed that the door we came out of locked behind us. <laughs> and that all of our phones and watches and really any way to get out of the situation we were in were inside on the kitchen table, which we could see like right through the wind. They were just right there. Okay. So... We, uh, we look up and down the, the row of condos and like all pitch black. Like everybody's in bed. It's about 10 o'clock at this point. We're sitting in the hot tub kind of talking about having to walk up and down the street looking for someone who's, who's going to lend us their phone or internet or something to be able to find a locksmith that's going to come to Park City at 10 p.m. to let five pastors who are soaking wet back into their house so that they don't die of frostbite. <laughs> we were set up for success, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Well, you know what happened? Uh, Josh McAvoy, he hopped out, put on his flip-flops, and started like traipsing around in the snow to find an unlocked door. Will and I, we got out, we started taking screens off windows to try and find an unlocked window. Jotham and Lucas, they stayed in the hot tub to pray. <laughs> Everyone, everyone plays a part in community. <laughs> so, the reason I actually showed you that picture from, uh, from Will was because he was standing uh, next to a few windows. And um, the way we got out of this is because a few hours before we went outside, Will was kind of fidgeting around, and he unlocked one of those windows. And through a daring feat of acrobatics, okay... <laughs> Him holding on to me, me climbing over a window well up to a second story window and opening it and shimmying through. We, we're still here, everyone. And a situation that looked as bad as freezing to death on Main Street in Park City is now one that we look back on as friends with great joy because we made it through together. Now, I know, I know I'm being a little silly, and we're talking about hot tubs and frostbite and snow. But have you ever been in a difficult situation before? Like one, one where you don't know how you're going to get out. Like it, where it seems impossible to get out. Like, have you ever tried to fight 
a sin habit or a pattern that just won't go away, like the kind of thing that you've given into so often that it's actually become a part of you. The kind of thing that you feel like it's going to overwhelm you and you keep on giving in and it keeps rearing its head. Here's what Ecclesiastes 4 is saying. God made us to walk through those things together. In our passage, Solomon brings up times when we fall, times when our souls grow cold and dark, and times when we face opposition. Has anyone faced any of those things? Here's God's design. One person brings a need. It might be their heart. It might be a difficult relationship. It might be an addiction. It might be a sin pattern. Whatever it is, it might even look impossible. But when we huddle together around Jesus and in the strength of Jesus and we remind one another of the strength we have in Jesus and change starts happening because he promises that it will, everyone gets a reward. That's God's design for community. I love seeing this happen at Gospel Grace. I love sitting in a circle in my community group and watching God do this in people's lives as we're there together. I love sharing it when God's doing it in my life. This is what we're made for. Oh, my friends, I wonder, have you ever experienced this before where someone comes along to you and they say to you, you know, I noticed this in you. It looks like you fell off the path there. It looks like you're struggling. Let's get you picked back up. Let's keep going. Like, has anyone ever noticed you in a cold, dark night of the soul and said, look, I've been there. Let's pray and let's hold on. We're going to get out of this with the Lord. Do you know what it takes for those things to happen? Letting someone into your life enough so that they can see you're in those spots and say those things to you, right? Alone, We're left to try and climb out of the ditches we fall into by ourselves. Alone, our souls can grow cold and forgetful to the things of God. Alone, the enemy could prevail against us. But Ecclesiastes 4 is saying that in those moments, community is God's plan to meet us in those needs and be a source of help. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great book on community, Life Together, has this to say about this thought right here. If you did this question in community group, you read it. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again. Wouldn't it be great if it was just once? Again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's word is sure. This is the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. This is what God made us for. We don't need to get better at finding our inner strength. We don't need to get better at being independent or individualistic. Don't need to find better escapes or work on stronger coping mechanisms. Life in this world is life together. That's the only way it works in God's design. You were made for community and you need community. Like not just connections, okay? Not just, not just a connection with another person. Because I don't think anyone has ever said, I think I'm gonna make it. I've got a thousand followers on Instagram. No, we're made for a community of knowing and being 
known. That's what God made us for. But here's the thing. I don't think that's new information, is it? Like, relationships are good, yes, okay? The question is, why are relationships so hard? Got a book on my shelf, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. (laughs) Paul Tripp. It's a good one. Why are relationships so hard? Well, that's the next thing that Solomon is going to show us in our text today. And that is this. Relationships are so hard because sin has broken God's design for community. That's why. Look down at our text. We're going to go back to verse 4. All the goodness that is found in community and closeness and connection with God that we're designed for, sin has broken it. Verse 4 says, I saw that all skill and all toil in work comes from a man's, what's that next word? Envy of his neighbor. I wonder, have you ever heard someone tell you something great that just happened in their life and then quietly, secretly in your, thought, your heart thought, they don't deserve that? No? Good. Me neither. Me neither. Never, never felt that before. Okay. I've heard. I've heard there's people that might struggle in that way, but a good thing it's not us. Right? No, the Bible calls that envy. And it keeps us from the relationships God intends us for. Envy pushes community away. Solomon says there's something buried deep inside our hearts. It is a cancer that drives why we work and what we do and how we relate to one another. It's a broken part of us that looks at what people around us have and looks at what we have and then does a big comparison game. And on the other side, wants what they have for ourselves. And the text talks about it. It talks about through this lens of like toil, toil. Like we know things aren't right. Skill, which, which isn't really skill. It's just being good at looking over your shoulder to check what your friend has to make sure you're just a little bit better. Envy. I wonder, have you ever, have you ever asked any of these questions before? Like, who's better than you and worse than you on your team at work? Who dresses better than you? Who's got a more fit body than you? A less fit body than you? Who's funnier than you around you? Who are you funnier than? Who's got better behaved kids? You or your friends? I mean, it even creeps into church. Who is more spiritual than you in your youth group? Who's more spiritual than you in your community group? Who in your friend group isn't as devoted as you are to this church? Do you know why we know the answers to those questions? Because we've asked them and answered them in our hearts, haven't we? And the problem with all of that is that God has called us to be able to truly rejoice with those that rejoice and truly weep with those that weep but instead we weep at others' success sometimes and we cheer at their failure. 
Sin has broken God's good design. Envy pushes relationships away. But Solomon goes on. He says, another thing pushes our relationships away. In verse five, it describes one way that we respond when we envy those who are around us. And so he caricatures this person who gives up. Like, they look around and they envy what other people have and then they take their hands and fold them and eat their own flesh, which I know is extreme, okay? But it's Solomon and he just says, deal with it, okay? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He tucks his hands that were made and given to him to serve God and others with others right into his armpits and he waits for deliveries of the things that he thinks he deserves. So this person's monologue is simply like, I deserve for people to reach out for me and if they don't, then I'm going to complain. Which when you think about it, that also goes against God's design. Because laziness, it fails to realize that having the kinds of relationships that God makes us for takes work, don't they? Like, this is not easy. They don't just happen. Like, I know this is silly, but no one ever comes to a point in their life where after investing in no one and not allowing anyone to invest in him, where they come to a party full of close friends and look at them all and say, you guys... Remember, hands folded. You guys, how'd you get here? And that's because this kind of community takes work and effort and time and energy and self-denial. But Solomon says, laziness wants closeness without the work. And sin has broken God's design. And then there's one other thing that's connected to sin that we see. Verse 6 Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving. In other words, enjoy what you have in one hand rather than reaching in with two hands for what you don't have. And Solomon says, sin's broken God's design for community when we are driven by dissatisfaction. Now this person, they don't sit in laziness, they're like reaching in with both hands to grab for themselves. This person is constantly saying like, if I could just, I can't wait until when this happens then and as soon as I can, then stuff's gonna get better. This person, they can't enjoy what's right in front of them because they're too busy reaching in for more. Solomon, he uses this one hand, two hand principle to show us like one hand is at rest with what you have. Two hands are grabbing for what you don't have. Oh, my friends, for people that are driven by dissatisfaction in their hearts, there's no time for community. There's no time because community doesn't get me what I want in both hands. You have to to let go of something for community, right? Those of you who like to get places fast, you ever tried to take a road trip with someone with a weak bladder? It's going to take a little longer, isn't it? Dissatisfaction, the constant drive for more. And the reason that this pushes relationships away is because how we treat those around us when we're driven by it. Like dissatisfaction and grabbing for something that we hope will satisfy 
we end up actually using people, don't we? We end up ignoring people around us, manipulating people. I think we can see in our own hearts this tendency, and I think we've felt it from other people too. Has anyone ever felt that before? Sadly, when this is happening, we look right past what God has given us in favor of trying to get more. But dissatisfaction misses the fact that God has already been unbelievably good to us in the people that he's placed around us already. And sadly, though God's design is so good for us, it's been broken by our sin. I wonder this morning, as I've been talking, have you felt any of those struggles in your heart? Have you experienced any of that from another person? Have you lived that way towards another? I know I did this week. Longing for something better and then seeing that actually my longings are connected to brokenness in my own heart. Like I had to confess laziness in relationships this week. Got on the phone with a friend and just said, you know, this text, it, it has shown me that I, I am lazy when it comes to relationships. Why didn't they reach out to me? In my own longings for better relationships, God showed me that my own heart was contributing to the problem. And I wonder if he's doing something similar in you today. You feel this longing in your heart for something better? It's not just Christians that feel this longing, though, is it? Like our, our world is feeling this longing for God's design. Like our, our current U.S. Surgeon General, he's actually been raising the cry about a modern epidemic that's going on in our world right now. And just so you know, okay, I'm not going to talk about COVID. Okay, some of you heard epidemic and COVID, and you're like, is there another wave that I don't know about? Because yeah, now what I'm talking about, okay? I'm actually talking about a report that Surgeon General Vivek Murthy released last year called this, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Wow. And in it, would you just hear what he says? This is what he says, okay? The impact of social disconnection is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. Now, I'm not trying to oversimplify. I'm not trying to ignore the fact that there are a lot of complicating factors. But I don't want you to miss this simple truth, and that is that God made us for community, but sin has broken God's design, and we feel its effects in the world around us and in our hearts, don't we? So what now? What now? Well, there's one final thing we need to see about community, and that is the answer to the longings that our text has shown us. Okay, so do you remember what I said at the beginning? The book of Ecclesiastes is really good at pointing out problems that only Jesus can solve. And that's what we've seen so far. But as we close, I want to show you the hope that's found in Jesus. And that is found in how Jesus answers the brokenness of our world when it comes to relationship. And I think we see that when we set this text in Ecclesiastes next to one that's found in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to, you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. God's design that sin has broken, Jesus meets us right there in Ephesians chapter 2. 
Turn over there with me. Let's see the good news about Jesus. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, separated from Christ, alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Later on in the text, you are no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And after everything we've been talking about this morning, glory to his name. Amen? Now I know there's way more in this text than we have time to get into. But do you see what's happening here? First of all, that first section I've got at the top, the work of Jesus restores our broken relationships to him. We are brought near. Those who are separated because of their sin are brought near by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But then not only that, the sin that separated people from each other is also dealt with as well. And simultaneously, the work of Jesus restores our relationship with each other as well. One author put it this way. The cross is a community-creating event. When Jesus died on the cross, he created a new community. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're a new community. Paul is so excited about this that he just starts throwing out metaphor after metaphor after metaphor to help us understand it. Fellow citizens, members of God's household, a temple, a dwelling place for God. You know, as I was studying this, I kept thinking, Paul, would you stop mixing metaphors? Okay, there's not enough time for me to explain all of them. But you know what? Paul didn't listen. And I think that's because there's a main point that ties them all together, and that is this. This new community that Jesus died to create is the ordinary but essential context for growth in the Christian life. Because finally, we grow in community that the gospel creates. God's design for community. Sin's broken it, but the gospel creates a new community in which we will grow. I mean, just look at how Paul piles these metaphors together. He throws in privileges as citizens, responsibilities as family members, and hope of God's presence as a holy temple, and even a guarantee of growth right in the middle of it. Like in other words, in gospel community, God has relocated his people to a context where they can and must and will grow. I mean, just lay this text next to everything we just talked about, about the brokenness of this world. Why do we need to envy when we have full rights and privileges as fellow citizens in God's kingdom? Why do we need to keep reaching in for more to earn our identity or prove our worth or fill up our emptiness when we already have an identity as sons and daughters in the household of God? 
Why fold your arms in laziness when God says he's building us together into a place where his spirit will dwell and in that we will grow? That's why we give ourselves to ordinary but essential practice of nurturing healthy community here at Gospel Grace because it's the essential context of growth in the Christian life. So with that, I want to make two final applications as we close and as we seek to live out this rhythm of growing in community. And the first is this. If God has made us a community, then we should live like one. If this is true, and it is, if God has made us a community, then we should live like one. Okay, so we do a lot of thinking about our vertical relationship with God and making sure we understand that. One author, his name's Joseph Hellerman, he says this, we should give as much thought to the vertical dimensions of our relationship with God as we do to the horizontal dimensions of our relationship with other people and those who are in God's family. In other words, he says this, we love nuancing, trying to understand and live out our justification. We need to give as much thought to nuancing and understanding and living out what he calls our familyfication as well. Familyfication. If you're a community, you should live like one. The gospel has created a new community of family, members of God's household, exclamation point, through the process of adoption. And if you know anything about adoption, then you know that once a judge declares a child to be part of a family, bangs the gavel down, and that child gets a new birth certificate, new social security number, and all the same rights as if he was biologically born to those parents. When that happens, in that moment, he doesn't just get a mom and dad. He also gets grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and sometimes even a brother and a sister too. Immediately. It's the same way in salvation. We become sons and daughters of God the Father and brothers and sisters to one another at the same time. Brothers and sisters, they're not just people who are like us or that we like. Like we don't just grow in community when we're comfortable in community. We grow in the family that God creates. Different ages, like look around. Different backgrounds, different interests, even different languages at times. The gospel community that we grow in is a people who have no reason to be together and no reason to love each other except the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to put you together and I'm going to put my love in you so that you'll love one another and glorify me. That's God's design. So my friends, if you've been adopted into God's family, what would it look like for you to grow as a brother or sister to those around you this week? How can you grow in understanding and living out your familyfication? What would it look like for you if you, every time you came to a gathering with God's people, you thought this when you saw them? These are my brothers and sisters. And not just because we use it as a term to refer to somebody we forgot their name. What's up, brother? But actually because we saw them as our brother or our sister 
through what Christ has done. If God has made you into a community, what would it look like for you to live more like one this week? Then finally, if God has made us a community, we should embrace a spirit of staying put. You know, some of the greatest struggles in community happen in the gap between expectations and reality. Am I right? In those moments when when we think community should be a certain way and then what it actually is aren't the same. It's in those moments when we're tempted to pull back and retreat or isolate and give up on a relationship or even move away. It's in those very moments that God does good work in us when we stay put. I think this is part of what Ephesians 2 is getting at when it says the phrase, we're built together. We're joined together. Because catch this, okay? God's building us together but we don't naturally fit, do we? Okay, let's, let's, just, let's just be honest for a moment. We don't naturally fit together. I mean, it takes a work of God to mold us and form us so that we actually fit together in something that looks okay. And for that to happen, we need to embrace that reshaping so that I can belong next to you and you can belong next to me no matter how different or broken we are. That means embracing the practice of staying put. Like perhaps, perhaps, I mean, it it just might be, maybe, as God is building us together that we're gonna need to grow in patience as we listen to others that take a little longer to formulate thoughts than we do. Maybe, right? Perhaps maybe as God is building us together, there are going to be times where you're going to need to grow in gentleness in how you respond to me because of my brokenness. It may be perhaps that there are aspects of our lives that need to be rubbed off and smoothed out. None of it's going to be comfortable. It's going to get messy, but God can do a good work when our rough edges bump into each other. And this text is telling us that my rough edges will make you smoother and your rough edges will make me smoother and together we'll be built into a dwelling place where God and his spirit will dwell. So y'all, that means you gotta stay put, okay? Now I'm not talking about making some vow where you're never leaving, okay? So welcome to gospel grace, you're never leaving. (laughs) Doors are locked. There's plenty of water in here. <laughs> no. No, it actually means that we have hearts that are quick to lean in and slow to bolt when it gets messy or hard. Don't you want that? I want that with you all. Quick to lean in slow to bolt because we trust that if God is building us together, there is work that will be done in us and through us when we stick around and give ourselves to it. 
mentioned Joseph Hellerman. He wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family. I want to leave you with this quote as we finish. He says this, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It's a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together but we do not grow much at all. So, we grow in community, gospel grace. Embrace your familyfication and have a heart of staying put. This is what God made us for and then remakes us into through his work on the cross, a community that comes to us through Jesus where we can grow up in every way into Jesus who is the head for his glory and our good. Let's live that out this week. Live that out. As we close, I invite you to think about what would it look like for you to grow as a brother or sister to someone in this congregation? Are there areas of envy or dissatisfaction or laziness that you need to confess to the Lord? And then how can you praise God for his work? I'm gonna take a moment to respond to God's word before we finish up our day together. Would you pray through one of those things and then perhaps you could take another one with you on your way home today? Let's pray. Lord, use your word in our lives. Change us by your grace for your glory. We need you, oh God. You're more than enough for us. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.